going out on a limb here, but you don't seem like a happy camper. Did you ever hear the story of the Fisher King? No. It begins with the king as a boy, having to spend the night alone in the forest to prove his courage so he can become king. Now, while he's spending the night alone, he's visited by a sacred vision. Out of the fire appears the Holy Grail, symbol of God's divine grace. And a voice said to the boy, you shall be keeper of the grail so that it may heal the hearts of men. But the boy was blinded by greater visions of a life filled with power and glory and beauty. And in this state of radical amazement, he felt for a brief moment not like a boy, like God. So he reached in the fire to take the grail, and the grail vanished, leaving him with his hand in the fire to be terribly wounded. Now as this boy grew older, his wound grew deeper, until one day, life for him lost its reason. He had no faith in any man, not even himself couldn't love or feel loved. He was sick with experience. He began to die. One day, a fool wandered into the castle and found the king alone. Now, being a fool, he was simple-minded. He didn't see a king. He only saw a man alone and in pain. And he asked the king, what ails you, friend? The king replied, Thirsty, I need some water to cool my throat. So the fool took a cup from beside his bed, filled it with water, and handed it to the king. And as the king began to drink, he realized his wound was healed. And he looked in his hands, and there was the Holy Grail, that which he sought all of his life. He turned to the fool and said with amazement, How could you find that which my brightest and bravest could not? I don't know. I only knew that you were thirsty. It's very beautiful, isn't it? So why do I share that with you? Well, for two reasons. One, the movie came out when I was like 11. So I'm guessing that most of you haven't seen that movie. And I feel like Robin Williams does a better job of telling that story than I would. Secondly, is that story is our story as a church. It's your story and my story. It's our story together. God has given us his divine grace, given us the opportunity to be his kingdom, to be his people, to be his church. But have we forgotten what we're supposed to be? John 20, which we've been looking at over the past uh, few weeks, is all about kind of the climax of the story of Jesus. One of the the 21 days that, that John decides to record about Jesus showing up and proving that he has risen from the dead. And so here we go into John chapter 21. John chapter 21 takes the next step. It's, it's saying, okay, Jesus is risen from the dead and he brings with them this kingdom that his resurrection brings Chapter 21 is all about us, about the church, how we can be the people that he has called us to be 
and that kingdom. And I'm convinced that these are words that we need to hear now more than ever. These are words that that we need to let sink into our our being because G.K. Chesterton said, by far the most powerful argument against the truth of Christianity is Christians. What do you mean when he said that? Has anybody else heard anyone say, this used to be more of a thing a little while back where people say, well, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. What do you think people were saying when they said that? I like the idea of God. I like the idea of Jesus. I like the idea of forgiveness. I can't stand the church. I've been hurt by the church. I've been hurt by Christians. You see, I believe that we as God's people are supposed to do more than just have a personal relationship with Jesus and go to meetings, come to church. Yes, that's important, but there's something more than that that God calls us to be as his people. And I believe that if we become who we're supposed to be, who God intends us to be, the church will change the world. Some of you out there are going, okay, gee, that's a little arrogant. It already has. In Jesus Christ, God has given us the power to heal the hearts of men. He has given us the power to change the world, to bring humanity back together. Just a couple of examples. I've used this one before. Uh, Corinth, where Christians were first called Christians. Uh, What happened in the ancient Near East, in those ancient cities, they'd be bringing all these different people groups together. And the different people groups wouldn't get along well in those uh, small quarters and confined spaces. And so what the Romans did is they got smart and they said, you know what we need to do is we need to build quarters We need to build quarters to keep everybody separate because if a fight breaks out in the marketplace, it could break out and it could burn the entire city to the ground. And so they built these quarters. And in Corinth, there were 14 different quarters for the 14 different people groups. And suddenly something started happening there. The walls started coming down between the people groups. There was this group of people that... They all got along, they all loved each other, and they were doing something different. People from all kinds of different races and backgrounds and spoke different languages. And so they called them Christians. Slavery. A lot of people claim credit for that, but that was a church. That was a church that led that charge and said, all men are created equal in the eyes of God. God loves all men. Just look at the life of William Wilberforce. But I think at times we as God's people forget who he has called us to be, what he has called us to be. And I think our world stops listening. Uh, Parents, what do you do when your kids stop listening? Do usually one of two things. We start to get louder, right? You're not listening, I'm going to increase my volume because that's really going to work. Or we get quiet. We go and huddle off in our own corner. And yet God calls us to do something different. See, the truth, the reality of people is, is that people grow where they're loved. And we have a world, we have a world that is, is a place where things are loved and people are used. And so what is this picture that, that John puts forward, that Jesus puts forward and says, this is what the church is supposed to look like. This is how the church is to be different than the world around us. Uh, from John chapter 21, verses 2 through 6. Simon Peter 
Thomas, also named, known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana and Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, have you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your nets on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul in the net because of the large number of fish. Well, fishing, that's odd. Some guy just kind of started to pay attention. He's going, oh, fishing church, that sounds like fun. Kind of like beer and hymns, I could do that. But what is Jesus getting at? What's going on here? You see, this fishing language has popped up in the gospel over and over and over again. There's this other account, right? This other account early in, the, in Jesus' ministry where uh, Jesus wants to teach the crowds, but the crowds are so large, so he hops in a boat. And this is Peter, and I think it's Andrew that's with him in the boat, and they haven't caught anything all night. And Jesus teaches, and they're tired, probably falling asleep in the boat because they're awake all night. And Jesus looks at him at the end of his, his message to the people and says, throw out the net. Throw out the net and catch some fish. And I'm sure Peter's thinking, all right, carpenter, you know how to fish. And so they do it. And they pull in such this large number of fish that the nets are overflowing. And Simon Peter kind of outs the situation. He realizes what's going on. And he says, Lord, go away from me because I'm a sinful man. What's the difference here in our account? Jesus is not in the boat. They don't even exactly recognize him. They don't know who it is. It's only a little bit after this that John starts to think, oh, I know who that is. That's Jesus. I remember this. And so what John is doing, what Jesus is doing, what they're telling us here is that even when Jesus isn't present, we God's people are still to be about his work in the world. And more than that, even when he isn't here, even when we don't recognize him or know that he's doing it or working in our world, in our lives, he's saying, I will help you do it. I will help you accomplish the mission for which I've sent you. So let's go back to that fishing thing. The disciples were by their boats, right, in the, the beginning of the gospel accounts. And what does Jesus say to them when he calls them? When he calls them to follow him. Anybody remember that? Come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. I always thought that was strange. I thought, that's not what somebody could say to me to get me to follow him. That sounds just kind of weird. And I think we miss it as people. We miss what Jesus is saying, the word fishing, and using that fishing metaphor, that's kingdom language. What Jesus is talking about is bringing people from one kingdom to another kingdom. And that's what the fishing metaphor is all about. You see, they lived in a world in a world that was governed by symbols. And the sea was a symbol for, for dark and cold, chaos and death and destruction. And so when you talked about fishing, you were talking about bringing people out of this kingdom of darkness and chaos and death into a different kingdom. As Paul said in 1 Colossians chapter, or verse 13, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. 
And so being the church is about more than just having a personal relationship with Jesus and going to meet him. It's about being part of a kingdom, about moving people from one kingdom to another, about from one realm to another. It's about us as God's people, not just here at St. John's, but all the churches in Orange becoming an alternate city. An alternate city that looks just like the city of Orange, that has all the people, all the races, everybody represented, but different. People that live differently, that look differently, that live attractively in such a way that people look at this different city and say, I want to be part of that city. See, out in the city, what's going on? Out in our community, what's happening the races, they don't always get along. How about the, the wealthy and the poor? Are, are the wealthy generous or do they have kind of a paternalistic attitude towards the poor? You see, there's all kinds of things that are going wrong out in the city. And, and Jesus is saying to us, I want you to be a different sort of city with different kinds of people all gathered together. And even here in the infancy of the church, we can see that happening. Because who's in the boat? Who's in the boat there? It's, it's Peter, Peter the ADD patron saint, the existentialist that needs to experience something in order to really believe it. We have John, John who's the rationalist, the one that thinks through things. He's the one that, you know, sees the catch of fish and says, ah, I know what's going on. You can see him thinking, I know it's the Lord. And then we have Thomas, Thomas who's probably a little bit more like us. Thomas the skeptic, Thomas the one that's hesitant to believe things, Thomas the one that that just wants to make sure he examines all the evidence first. And then we have Nathaniel. And I know a lot of Nathaniels. Nathaniels are people like Sedonaite people, people that believe in crazy and weird things. Because what happens at the beginning of the story, Jesus comes to Nathaniel and and (laughs) he says to Nathaniel, I saw you under the fig tree. And Nathaniel goes, oh, I believe in you. And Jesus, what does Jesus do? He Does he say, that's great? He says, what are you thinking? I haven't said anything. I haven't done any of my signs and my miracles, and you're buying in now? You're going to see some incredible things. Oh, by the way, Nathaniel, I've got some oceanfront property to sell you in Arizona. We see a, a different kind of community, and we're not even talking about Matthew, the tax collector, the Jew who served the Gentiles, he was worse than the Gentiles because he was on their side. Or in, what about Paul? Paul, the Jew of Jew, the Hebrew of Hebrews, the Pharisee of Pharisee. And who does he go and minister to? The people that he wouldn't be caught dead with. That's the kind of kingdom that our God makes. It's about more than having a relationship with Jesus and going to meetings. It's about the community of the king, and it's something that we can't do by ourselves. You see, that's what we're supposed to be. And I could end the sermon here now and say, all right, guys, go out and do it. And it would probably be pretty miserable. What Jesus goes on to show us next is why we, as his people, are always failing You know, the interesting thing that I noticed this time through John chapter 21 is that Jesus doesn't pull Peter aside 
there when he reinstates him. He does it right in the middle of everybody else. They finish eating, and Jesus starts talking. He says, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Love me more than these. What is Jesus talking about? He's not specific there, and so there's been all sorts of guesses. All sorts of guesses about what he's talking about. Say sometimes it's a fish or, or the boats or your previous occupation, what you do in life. But I think Jesus is bringing together another, bringing to mind another incident. An incident where, where Peter said, I do love you more than everybody else. Everybody else can fail you, but I'm not going to fail you. So three times Jesus asked him, do you love me? And of course, Jesus here is humbling him. But what else is he doing? Why would he do it in the middle of all the other disciples? What is he doing to you and to me as he says, feed my lambs? You see, the the basic building block, the basic thing, the basic foundation of that radical sort of community, that community that Jesus came to create, that community that shatters the stereotypes and shatters all the prejudices, is a very down-to-earth building block. The building block of this kind of community, the kind of community that Jesus came to create, is a true friend. If we as God's people want to accomplish the mission of Jesus, if we as Jesus' people want to change the world, we need to learn how to be a true friend. See, what does Jesus say when he appears to his disciples? When he's standing there on the shore, he calls out to them and he says, Friends, have you any fish? And if we were to go and look at the language there, it actually wouldn't make any sense to us. Because what Jesus says to them also might almost seem like an insult because he says the word paideia. Paideia isn't the usual word for friend. Paideia is the word for children. It's where we get pediatricians from. He says, children, have you any fish? And what Jesus is saying here is he's using the most colloquial language, the most familiar, the most intimate language that you would use with your closest friends. What you would say to your buddies as you're gathering around with, with people that you love most dearly. Why would Jesus do that? You see, this isn't the first time he's used that word. He used that word back in John chapter 15 where he shows us what a true friend is. He says, I'm no longer going to call you servants. Now I'm going to call you children, my closest friends. Because I'm going to tell you my heart. I'm going to tell you who I am and what I'm about. I'm going to tell you everything about me. And then I'm going to die for you. See, masters don't die for servants. So here's the definition of a true friend. A true friend is someone who is completely transparent and someone who is always there for you. So how are you doing? You a good friend, a good neighbor? Now, first blush, I go through that and say, I'm doing all right. 
But then I realized that some of my neighbors were here, and I thought, I better be careful there. Are you always there for your friends, or do you use them? Are you in relationships thinking, okay, what can I get out of it? Are you in a relationship to feel good about yourself, to, to get respect, to, to have an agenda and get your agenda across? When you're in a conversation with people, are you really listening to them? Are you thinking about what you're going to say next? We were talking about this the other day as a, I was working with a couple of guys, and we started talking about the man that we see on the side of the road, the homeless man. We talked about what is it, why are we stopping and, and giving them the granola bar or the five bucks? Is it because we really believe we're going to help him and fix his situation and make his situation better? Or are we doing it to feel better about ourselves? And then Jesus says to us, Peter, do you love me more than these? You see, Jesus always outs us. Jesus always knows where our hearts is at because he tells us, feed my lambs. What is he saying? He's saying, show up in order to feed other people, not to be fed yourself. Show up to feed the, 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 the people that you wouldn't want to be seen with. Show up to show the people that are unlovely because that's what lambs are. Lambs aren't cute and cuddly creatures like they are on the Hallmark cards. They're ugly creatures, and they're always in need of something. And he also says, my, feed my lambs, the ones that I would choose. Because what's going on in Peter's heart? What's going on in our hearts? What was wrong with Peter when he stood up and said, I'm never going to fail you, Jesus? He's saying, I'm better. I'm a very good religious person. I'm following you. I'm listening to what you say. I'm better than everybody else. They might, but I won't. And what Peter is doing is he's becoming his own savior. He's using Jesus rather than serving Jesus. See, Peter wasn't transparent. He wasn't transparent at all. He wasn't even transparent with his own heart. He didn't even really think through, okay, if this is to happen, what would I do? And he doesn't just let Jesus down. He lets everybody down. When the tough stuff starts happening, what does he do? He turns tail and he runs. So what Jesus is telling us as he reinstates Peter, we hear these words, is that you're never going to be a true friend. The lambs will always out you. So what can we do? What can we do? Where do we find the hope that we need? Picking up at verse 18, Jesus says this weird thing, Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are older, you will stretch out your hands, and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would die and would glorify God. Then he said to him, Follow me. And what Jesus is saying to Peter, what Jesus is saying to you and to me is that we need a greater friend. We need a perfect friend, a higher friend, a, a friend that is so magnificent and so awesome that will never need to be mercenary in any of our relationships again. 
That, that Jesus is going to be so much for us that we aren't going to need to go into any relationship needing anything else out of anyone. Because Jesus is the most vulnerable person ever. He was nailed with his arms wide open for you. And when it came between the, the choice of going to hell or saving you, he said, okay, Father, I'll go to hell if it means that I can save them. Jesus is the only true who will always be completely and totally transparent with you and will never, ever fail you. Saturday, I shared a class with uh, our premarital couples. And I'm convinced that this is one of our problems in marriage as in society as we go into relationships looking for this in other people. If we go into a relationship looking for someone to save us, if we go into a relationship looking for someone to give us that ultimate meaning and identity, we will crush them. And if we go into a relationship like that, we won't be a very good friend either. But if Jesus is our best friend, if Jesus is the one that, that shapes our identity and our purpose and who we are, now you can be a true friend. Now you can be the kind of community that literally can change the world. So how do we get there? How do we do that? How does that become real to us? First of all, feast with Jesus. We see it in the rest of the text there. What does Jesus do when they come to the shore? He invites them to sit down and eat with them. Feast with Jesus to the degree that, that his forgiveness and his love becomes real to you in the wine and, and the bread. And Jesus, Jesus here for us. You'll understand that he's a true friend. And, and the degree that gathering together and being strengthened by people of a like mind strengthens us, the more we'll be able to be a true friend. Fail with Jesus. See, that's the other thing that's going on with Peter. Yeah, Peter's being led to repentance and he's being reinstated, but what else is happening there? Jesus says to him, do you love me? And what's Peter's response? Uh, Jesus, that was a really hard situation. And uh, no, he doesn't make excuses. He says, yeah, Lord, you're right. But I still want to be on your team. I still want to serve you. And what does Jesus say to Peter then? Now you're qualified. Now you're qualified to serve me. When you fail with me, you're qualified to serve for me and be a part of my kingdom. And then follow Jesus. There's an interesting thing. It has to be one of the most comical things in Scripture. Right after Jesus tells Peter how he's going to die, Jesus looks over and, or Peter looks over and sees John and says, But what about him? And Jesus says, don't worry about him. This is about you and me. You follow me. So what does that mean when we come into other people's lives, into other people's stories? It means that we can't judge them because we don't know the path that God has for them. He only tells us our path. And finally, fly to Jesus. The two stories, the miraculous catch of fish right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. What happens when, when Peter sees what happened? He says, Lord, depart from me for I'm a sinful man. Peter doesn't get the gospel. He doesn't understand what it's all about. He says, go away. I don't want to think about my sin. I can't be near you. And here at the end of the story, 
the beginning of the church, what does Jesus, what does Peter do? Peter sees the miraculous catch of fish and he gets to Jesus as fast as he possibly can. Fly to Jesus. Does Peter know what's going to happen? No. But he knows that he needs Jesus, just like you and me.